Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Professor Lynn Wood Molinar. Professor Molinar is a cultural historian specializing in the history of France between the Renaissance and the Revolution. She teaches at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and her book, Strange Revelations, Magic, Poison, and the Sacrilege in Louis XIV's France, explores a criminal magical underworld thriving in the heart of the affair of the poisons. Let's hear what she has to say about La Voisin and the affair of the poisons. Professor Molinar, thank you so much for joining us today. You're so welcome. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> so please set the scene for us. What was life like for most people in the mid to late 17th century France? And, and, and in contrast, what was life like for the aristocracy and King Louis XIV's court? Well, I think uh, then and now there is a tremendous disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And that is true, uh, I think, truer in Paris than almost any place else. Uh, because Paris, it's the, it's the largest city in France. It's uh, one of the largest cities in Europe, if not the largest city at all. Uh, but Paris, although it has paved streets, it has, it's the first city in Europe to have streetlights that go in in 1670. Uh, at the same time that it is a city of immense wealth um, and the center of noble life, 
because still in 1670, 1675, uh, the aristocracy are not living in Versailles. They don't move in there to 1682. So many of them have hotel, these large mansions in Paris. And so uh, they're the haves. They're the, you know, 1% of the one percenters. But at the same time, Paris has incredibly uh, poor folks who don't have homes, who are uh, day laborers, uh, who hire them, themselves out to drag, uh, you know, sedan chairs um, through the winter. So it is a it's a city of immense contrasts. So who was La Voisin? And am, am I saying that correctly? Uh, La Voisin. La Voisin. Right. So her her name is Catherine uh, Montvoisin. At the time of that she's arrested, she's about 40. She is the most successful sorceress in Paris. She's uh, she's a fortune teller. Uh, we don't know much about her early life because, you know, what we know about her is her accounts of herself that she gives under interrogation. So I do want to say that, you know, much of what we know about this is extracted from uh, imprisoned people, often under, if not under torture at times, but certainly under conditions uh, uh, where, you know, they're being forced to speak. Um, so La Voisin is married initially to a jeweler. Uh, what she says about her early career is that this jeweler, um, and, you know, he's a goldsmith and a jeweler, and he's got uh, shops across Paris, but he loses his shops, right? He's a bad businessman. And so she has many children, and the uh, work of maintaining the household falls to her. This is how she accounts for how she gets into fortune telling. Uh, and uh, more. Uh, so she says that she has to go out and earn a living. And, and one of the things that she says fairly frequently is that she has 10 mouths to feed. So she has children who go from teenage um, to young, and she launches her business as a fortune teller, as a card reader, uh, as a purveyor of love magic and love spells, and as an abortionist and a poisoner. So where does she conduct her business? Well, Paris, um, if you can imagine, you know, old map of Paris, what you'll always see is the Seine right, running through the city in a bow. And then you'll see sort of this, you know, uh, not very even shape, but sort of plunked down in the middle of the map. And it's it's got hard edges because those are city walls. So Paris has city walls that are built every couple of hundred years and they expand. But the city walls are for protection. but um, folks always live beyond them. And the city walls in the 17th century go up to, you know, only so far. And that's where the Paris uh, police, right, have jurisdiction. She lives just past the city walls. She lives in this relatively new neighborhood that's got villas with large gardens. And it's in the back of her garden that she allegedly has, you know, the shed where she uh, manufactures toad poison, where she uh, performs abortions, right, and where she meets clients. But she meets her clients at home and, you know, anywhere within, you know, this this villa that she has. So she's got uh, she's got reception rooms in her villa. <laughs> now, at the time, how hard is it to be a woman in France? Uh, was La Voison uh, seizing an opportunity in the market, or do you think that she was providing a social service? 
Well, you know, um, I it's uh, let's see. I guess a historical truism is that it's always easier to be a man, right? Um, so women certainly have many more constraints in terms of their independence. Uh, well, neither women or men can marry without parental permission at this point in in Europe. Uh, but women have no public political power, right? They they nobody can vote. Uh, but the only access to power that women have really is familial power, but it also can be romantic relationships, right? It's being close to a powerful man. Uh, so I think in terms of the service that Lavoisin is offering, and she offers, she's, her clients are both men and women, uh, but love magic is one of the ways in which you could become closer to a powerful person. Uh, it's a way to marry into maybe a powerful family. Uh, it is, uh, it offers a means of controlling, you know, somebody else. If you can cause them to fall in love with you, then you have power over them. And so many of the clients who love Voisin uh, has, they want that sort of power over their husband so that they will have increased sphere of actions. So it may be that the love magic is not just about it's because your love is unrequited and you want somebody to love you back. It can be that you want that person to fall in love with you so you can do whatever you want. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of the of uh, her most famous uh, clientele? Uh, I don't know if they will be famous now. In fact, I'm pretty sure they won't. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Uh... Yeah, of course. Uh, Kim Kardashian. So, right. Um, if you can think it, they are some of the most powerful women at court. Uh, allegedly, and probably, I mean, I, I, I'm somebody who inclines to think that Louis XIV's mistress, Madame de Montspin, is, is a client. I don't think she's a client who purchased uh, poison. That would be um, uh, because if you were to poison uh, Louis the Fourteenth, then you lose all access to royal power. So that that makes uh, that doesn't make any sense. However, it certainly makes sense to me that Louis the Fourteenth's mistress uh, would seek to increase her hold over him, right? And I think uh, was most likely buying love powders to slip into Louis XIV's food. And the love powders, um, which came from La Voisin, are, are very nasty. Uh, they contain, um, let's see, uh, they most love potions, or not most, a lot, uh, just generally contain menstrual blood. It's a powerful, uh, dried menstrual blood, if, the, if that helps. Um, it's a powerful love potion. Anything associated with fertility is, is used in love potions. So that can be desiccated umbilical cords. It can be sperm. It can be, um, and they talk about it as both male and female sperm because it was thought that women also, uh, you know, had sperm that was necessary for conception and menstrual blood was the way to get to that. So anything that has to do with fertility is, is going to be a powerful ingredient in love magic. Uh, and the ones that were uh, maybe administered to Louis the 14th had iron filings, um, a consecrated communion wafer crumbled up uh, and 
allegedly the blood of a sacrificed uh, infant, uh, all combined, right, and then administered as a as a love filter. So uh, the love potions, right, if given to Louis the Fourteenth. Oh, sorry, missed one really important ingredient: Spanish fly. Right. Um, so Spanish flies, it's an, uh, an aphrodisiac in in large quantities. It's also a poison. So you got to be careful about the dosage. Uh, but all these are mixed together, slipped into Louis XIV's food. Uh, and, you know, some uh, his his doctor's journals, uh, you know, are uh, have have been kept. And he really was sick uh, at a couple of times when his mistress allegedly, you know, had bought um, these love filters. So there is some circumstantial evidence that he really may have uh, had these in, in, uh, you know, in a meal. So. Wow. Can, can you walk us some of the more satanic rituals that she performed uh, and, and what they promised they would accomplish? Yeah. So um, some, I, so these are what I've called amatory masses. And uh, this is it's the most sacrilegious ritual that you could possibly imagine. Uh, and I, that's also, you know, what gives it its, uh, its power, right? Um, but these amatory masses, I want to distinguish them from a black, you know, what we think of as a black mass and, you know, black magic, because a, a black mass would be an attempt to uh, call up and harness the powers of the devil, right, to do somebody's work. Uh, but these amatory masses are really attempting to to harness the sacerdotal power of the practices of the objects of the rituals of the Catholic Church. This is a time when people deeply believe uh, that they're ardent Catholics, and if they don't believe in the power of Catholic ritual and practice and imagery, they wouldn't bother using it in their magic. But what they're trying to do is harness that power, right? That sacerdotal power power to illicit ends. And that's what an amatory mass does in the most sacrilegious um, way possible. So this is what uh, La Voisin and then her accomplice, uh, who's a magician named Lesage, you know, said happened. They would have the woman for whom the amatory mass is being said come in and strip naked. And she would be placed backwards over an altar, right? A consecrated altar. And then a mass would be said over her. The, the term they use is, is ventre, but it's a, it means stomach, but it's a polite term for genitals, right? So it's like <laughs> right, like right over, let's say her lower, uh, you know, half. Uh, and this, this mass is said by a priest. And it has to be a priest because it's only a priest who, you know, has uh, who has the power to harness, right, that kind of supernatural religious power. And at the conclusion of uh, this mass, allegedly an infant is sacrificed and its blood poured into the chalice that is perched on the woman's, you know, lower stomach. And then, you know, just um, to... Uh, to make it even more sacrilegious, the priest is supposed to have sex with her on the altar. Uh, so, and as you can imagine, this pretty much makes uh, 
you know, the the judges who are hearing this account, it makes their heads uh, explode. And um, because it, it just brings together the most horrific things that you can imagine then or now, right? Now, I do want to say that um, infant sacrifice, right, and kind of sexual crimes have been associated with those outside of um, uh, accepted norms since time immemorial, right? So if you think about it, early Christians are uh, accused, right, of orgies, right, and blood sacrifice. So are uh, so are medieval Jews, um, maybe not the orgy part, but certainly the sacrifice, right, child sacrifice, uh, and early modern witches. So, right, this is also drawing upon longstanding tropes in terms of what are the most horrific crimes that can be imagined, both religious and secular, wrap them up together. Who were these renegade priests that um, that would make do these masses and, and how are they, I guess, how did they get involved in her uh, business? Well, um, there are any number of unemployed priests in Paris, right, at this at this time. It's a, uh, uh, there are unemployed priests or, or priests who might have what's essentially, you know, a, a, not a, they, they don't have a parish, right? They're associated with a cathedral. They're paid to sing masses, right? But they, they're, let's call them underemployed priests. Uh, so what you do have is some who turn to um, partnerships with Paris's magicians and sorcerers in order to, uh, well, you know, to make to be paid, right? And so these priests agree to. Uh, it can be, it can be something that doesn't sound so, so terrible to us, but it's uh, maybe in the 21st century. But it's it's certainly sacrilegious, uh, 17th century. Now, um, it might be that the a priest would take money to certify that somebody's been to mass that year because it's actually required by law that somebody confess and go to mass every that every single. Uh, inhabitants, right, of uh, the country who's who's Catholic, right? Probably not everybody is at this point. Um, uh, attends mass and go to confession once a year. So that's enshrined in law. Some people don't want to go to confession. So they'll pay off a priest to have a certificate or to have a, you know, a, a to have what's called a, it's called a white communion. And it is, uh, it is, taking the sacrament with an unconsecrated wafer, right? Now that also says that people believe deeply because if they don't believe that the consecrated wafer, right, is a holy object that is the bread, it's not the bread, sorry, the the blood and body of Christ, you don't worry about taking it without confession, but they do. So it it could be something as, you know, signing off, you know, I, I really went to confession. Um, it could be that a priest accepts money to put a love charm under the altar when he's celebrating mass, because that's understood that the the power of the mass will, in a way, activate the love charm, right? Uh, and then some of those priests who are involved in baptizing wax figures, right, or uh, saying the mass over love charms, would maybe say a mass over somebody's you know, over an actual person to make their their desires come true. 
So as to their, uh, how they become involved with uh, La Voisin, I don't have the particulars, but they're enough around and they're underemployed mm. and they seek out, uh, let's just say, side, side gigs. Um, hustle. They're hustlers. They're hustlers. <laughs> Everyone they're hustlers. needs a side hustle. Yeah. Really. <laughs> so you coined the term criminal magical underworld. How, how does this, uh, the term encaps, uh, what, who does the term encapsulate? Well, what I was trying to do with that was differentiate this criminal underworld. I mean, it, it, Paris is rife with pickpockets, right? With thieves, with swindlers, right? Who Who don't have anything to do with magic. But at the same time, there is a real community of folks who are dabbling in magic. So I was trying to distinguish these two groups, but also to suggest that there's there's a network of people who tend to live in the same areas and to do business with one another, right, or make referrals to one another. Uh, and if you map out Paris, right, during the right before the affair of the poisons, you can see that the the folks who are caught up all live in the same neighborhood, some around La Voisin, some closer to what's now Les Halles. Uh, but they are business associates. So that's what I was trying to capture with that idea of a, you know, network underground. And also that they're accessible. Like you could ask around Paris and probably be connected, right? There's a, there's the clientele is word of mouth here. So <laughs> it's like the 17th century LinkedIn. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's about, it's, it's about who knows who, right. And connections to, and I want to get this done. Who would I go to? Who's yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So I'd like to pit a bit a bit and, and talk about the affair of the poisons. Uh, first off, how common was it for people to poison each other during this time? Uh, was it and, and how prominent was it in Louis XIV's court? So, you know, did, did people actually get away with it? I would say what's what's always prominent is that people believe it's going on. Right. So poison is associated with the uh, royal courts and noble courts. Like you, you can find, you can go back to the uh, to the Middle Ages. You can go back um, and find mistresses who are, you know, um, either thought to have been poisoned by rivals, right? And it, uh, go back to Agnès de Sorel, right, with uh, Charles the Charles the Sixth, maybe Charles the Seventh. I have to check that. Um, so this association of poison and the royal courts is a long-standing one. Does it happen? Uh, it does. Uh, but the affair of the poisons, I think, is one of those perfect storms where what you have is uh, organization of sort of, uh, maybe not organization, power dynamics are such that women can have tremendous political power behind the scenes. And that's always true at courts. It's not women don't have public political power, right? They can't hold office, right? They can't uh, they they can't be officers in the, in the military, but they can acquire behind the scenes influence as members of families, like or in romantic relationships. And it's certainly at this centralized court because Louis the Fourteenth has centralized court more than any other monarch, right, in Europe, where you have women who are extremely powerful. And the way to power is through the king, right? The closer you are in physical proximity to the king, 
uh, the more likely you are to receive economic or social benefits, right, from the king, because he's the one who's handing out the favors. And he's not letting anybody else hand out estates, right, or offices or advantageous marriages or abbeys. So the closer you are to the king, the more likely you are to reap the benefits, right, of that relationship. And the woman who's closest to Louis XIV, right, is his mistress. Now, there's also, you know, the queen, early modern queens are getting less and less powerful, but this Louis XIV's wife is particularly um, uh, kind of sidelined, right? She doesn't really speak French. Uh, she's not that bright. Um, she is extremely devout, uh, but she's she's sidelined in the court. So what you have is this opportunity as well for women at the court of Louis XIV to think that they really could rise not to be queen, right, but to be recognized as his number one mistress. Now, he always, um, I mean, Louis XIV is not um, at any time in his life that I've ever been able to figure out uh, uh, faithful, right? He's always got a lot of, um, he's got a lot of side chicks all the time. Uh, but the one you want to be is sort of officially recognized. You're the most powerful woman at court. Um, what I have, what I would, how I've thought about this is you're the shadow queen of the court. So uh, I think that when we talk about the, why the affair of the poisons and why poison, uh, the affair of the poisons is so much more than poison, right? You might be poisoning somebody to get them out of your way. So you have more license, right, for independence. But those same poisoners, almost all of them are really peddling love potions, right? And love charms. And it, people try those first, right? Because it's a way of controlling somebody's, uh, what they say is heart, mind, and will. But it's only if that fails that somebody turns to poison. Or it may be that they're inconvenient relative and, you, you know, they're also called inheritance powders. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, what brings about the start of the scandal? Uh, it is, it's literally, um, this is a very old expression, I realize it's dropping a dime, you know, it's, uh, so there's a 17th century uh, method of, of dropping a dime on someone. Um, and it's to put a note in the confession box in a certain Jesuit church in Paris. And it's known that if you want to make a denunciation, an anonymous denunciation to the to the police, this is how you do it. And so in the fall of 1678, somebody drops, writes uh, a, a note she says she's found that it's about, um, you know, poison going on in Paris. Somebody puts it in the in the collection box in the Jesuit church and two Jesuits take the note and they go to the police and say, this is what this is, this is what we got. And that's really what starts the police investigation. Wow. How how does uh, La Voisin uh, get implicated in this uh, witch hunt? And and I guess maybe we should take a step back. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this name incorrectly, but uh, who's the Marquis de Brinvilliers? Oh yeah, Brinvilliers. Um, gosh, she's now she's a piece of work. Uh, <laughs> she's uh, by all accounts right. She's she's wealthy. She's beautiful. Uh, she has a couple of kids, right? So, but 
She also uh, has a lover whom she likes much more than her husband. Um, and what the Marquise does, along with her lover, whose name is uh, Saint-Croix, is they work with a chemist to develop a poison, a tasteless, odorless poison. And this is, you know, this is the kind of, this is the reach goal for every would-be poisoner because you don't want to get caught. So it's got to be tasteless and odorless. And they managed to develop, allegedly, this uh, tasteless, odorless poison. And the Marquise begins to knock off various family members because what she really wants is, you know, a greater inheritance. Uh, so she poisons, you know, her father. She poisons her brother. Um, she uh, tries to poison her children. She's not caught. She she escapes in time. Uh, she flees north into a, you know, into a convent up there. And so her crimes are known. She's uh, she's sort of public enemy number one. There's a, a a a policeman who goes, you know, up north and manages to convince her that he's fallen in love with her. He's disguised as like an abbe, somebody who's taken vows, and that if she'll only you know confess to all her sins and run away with him, then uh, they can live happily um, ever after. So she writes his confession and she goes out to meet him and he probably has her arrested and she's brought back to France and she's tried. And uh, part of her sentence is that she's to be tortured. Uh, torture is an inter it's um it's an interrogation technique, right? It's it's not a it's not a punishment. It's punishing, but it's not a punishment. She says, you know, there are just hundreds of poisoners in Paris, but she won't say who they are. So what she has done is kind of set the scene, right? She's now this, uh, there's been a kind of longstanding association between women and poison. And here, right in the, like, you know, right before the affair of the poisons, what you have is a case where that's made real. This Marquise, right, who really is a poisoner and is burnt to death, you know, uh, burnt alive in a, the public square. And has made mysterious statements about how there are all these other poisoners in Paris. And so what you have is the, you know, police on alert, trying to find out who she was talking about. Uh, and she's the background, right? And she's made real, right? What has always been a stereotype. Then you have back to the collection box, right? You know, this dropping a dime. So it's like more possible evidence that nefarious things are going on. But the police get their break when this lawyer uh, who goes off to a dinner party, and this is, you know, in the fall of uh, winter of 1679, goes off to a dinner party with these folks who he is going treasure hunting with. As a sidebar, one of the things people want to, you know, from magicians, right, is they want to pay the magician to invoke a demon and the demon is going to reveal the location of lost treasure. Uh, and by the way, you need uh, a renegade priest to invoke the demons. It's, it's very, it's dangerous work, right? Uh, and requires <laughs> a lot of learning to compel the demon to do the necromancer's wishes. But there are people who are doing in this, they're convinced that there's treasure buried all over the, you know, the province because it was buried during the Civil War, the Fronde. Um, so this lawyer is one of those treasure hunters. And it's a 
get rich quick. And this is a time in history when there's no, you can't just go make money, you can find money, right? But there's a, a finite amount of, of treasure or, or money in the world. And to increase your own holdings, you either have to find that treasure or you have to take somebody else's, right? So it's it's a zero-sum game. And treasure hunting is, I don't know that it's popular, but there are definitely you know, many people doing it. So here's this lawyer. He's got these kind of seedy associates because demonic treasure hunting is not really something you can put up on a shingle for. And everybody is kind of kicking back and they're delighted and they're drinking a lot of wine. And one of the guests at the party says, you know, one more poisoning and I'll have my fortune made. And this lawyer's like, exactly who am I hanging out with now? Uh, and he goes off to the police and makes a denunciation about this guest who is a fortune teller, writes her name is Marie Boss, and another guest there too, or the, the host of the party, um, whose name is La Vigoreux. And um, both those women are arrested and they are interrogated and they start to name names. And if you can think of them as being the center, right, and then with the affair of the poisons, right, this... Um, the people caught up in the net start there, and it's you get the uh, Marie Boss uh, and their families are arrested, and then they name names, and the right the net just gets wider and wider and wider, and later that spring it catches up La Voisin as well. So, how uh, does La Voisin ever divulge her list of clients, and and what is her fate? She never, uh, it, it's her daughter, actually, uh, her her daughter names names. It's her daughter who uh, makes an accusation against Louis, Louis XIV's mistress, uh, Madame de Montespan. Lavoisin names some names, but never Montespan. Um, Lavoisin is, uh, she does name the names of several prominent courtiers, uh, one of whom is the... Uh, is Olympe Mancini, Cardinal Mazarin's uh, niece, if you remember him from the Three Musketeers. His three nieces are are like the Kardashians of the middle of the 17th century, <laughs> like <laughs> fabulously beautiful, wealthy, um, socialite kind of aristocrats. And uh, and Olympe uh, Mancini uh, has to flee France. Louis XIV tips her off because they had a thing early. So La Voisin does not name Madame de Montespan, and uh, she is executed. She's burned alive uh, in the spring of 1679. Uh, however, you know the investigation goes on to 1682. Uh, it's conducted by a, a special tribunal that meets in the basement of a building card called the Arsenal, and they meet in the basement, and the walls are hung with black drapes and they're burning torches. And that's why they call this uh, tribunal the, the burning chamber, right? The Chambre Ardent. But La Voisin is actually burnt alive rather early in the three-year scandal. How many people are implicated in, in the entire affair of the poisons? Over 400 are caught up. Wow. So over 400. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the nobles get all the... Um, you know, get all the headlines, but they're they're people from the top to the bottom of the social hierarchy. They're they're laundresses, right? Um, there are 
marquise and contests uh so it it really does g- give you a whole it, it, uh, you know slice of of paris um they're they're so robe nobles right um you name it somebody's been caught up uh so there there are over 400 people caught up there are about 36 who are executed 34 are sent to the galleys the galley uh is um, where you become a, a galley slave, right on one of the king's galleys in the Mediterranean. So it's a it's a sentence to hard labor. It's it's the it's considered the equivalent of a death sentence. So when you think about those, um, I don't know Charlton Heston movies, right, where he's there and uh, you know rowing, uh, you know the galley that uh, France has galleys in the Mediterranean. People are sentenced. Criminals are sentenced um, to a stint in the galleys. That's understood to be. Um, the equivalent of a death sentence. And then maybe even more tragically, you have about 60 people who are never sentenced at all, but they're thought to know too much about maybe Madame de Montespan, maybe other high-ranking courtiers. And those 60 people are actually sent out to the border fortresses around France and chained to the wall of cells and never let out. Wow. And that includes uh, La Boisin's daughter, uh, Marie Marguerite. Wow. Finally, uh, Louis XIV is, is, he's the one who calls for the investigation, I believe. Um, and uh, he then chooses not to disclose his findings. Why, why, why is that? The investigation, um, which Louis XIV is, is always, he's informed of, closely informed of is run by the lieutenant of the Paris police. So that's the chief of the Paris police, a man named Nicolas, Nicolas de la Reine. And uh, what I would say is that the investigation is going too high and too close to the king. Uh, la Reine takes detailed notes of every interrogation, right? In fact, you can... Uh, go and, and read these registers, right? Um, they're still held in, in Paris. You can read La Reine's handwriting, right? He's scribbling in the margins, you know, uh, notes to himself as well. You can see over the years that his handwriting gets, you know, a bit worse. But the the king really pulls the plug on the investigation. It's thought there's no direct evidence of this, simply that it's it's gotten too close to his mistress, who's the mother of his children, right? And the scandal uh, compromises Louis XIV's, in 17th century France, they would call it his gloire, right? His his reputation, his greatness, uh, his, um, his stature, and that of his children. So the investigation is brought to an end. Uh, and so is his relationship with Madame de Montespan, by the way. So this is at about the exact same time that they're that, that it's recognized that she's no longer right his mistress uh, his official mistress wow she's not even a side chick uh at the end of the day finally uh we we like to ask our guest experts this question if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the execution of La Voison and uh, the others implicated in the affair of the poisons, who or what would that be? 
you know, I I did get, I have been thinking about this because I knew it's part of uh, the questions that you ask. And I would love to have a neat answer for this. But historians always recognize that uh, basically complex events are multi-causal. So I don't know if I can narrow it down to one. But what I do think is that you have a certain dynamic of power uh, that means that access to the king, right, is of um, greater import than ever, right? So so in a way, we, what we have are higher stakes here. Uh, we have the invention maybe of a uh, colorless, odorless poison. Uh, and so I guess what we have um, there is both motive and means. And I don't know if we can attribute that to any one person or any one concept. I mean, we could blame the execution too on the judicial system. But I would think that the the tragedies behind the affair of the poisons are not just those who are executed, but those who are sent to um, solitary confinement and chained to the wall for life, right? The, the, the body count is higher than just those publicly executed. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to do is weasel out of an answer uh, to that question. <laughs> well, we understand. <laughs> we'll let you have it this time. Thank you so much for uh, helping us uh, understand this very interesting 17th century scandal. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. So... Like, I just love hearing about these 17th century scandals. Uh, mm-hmm. They're so juicy. This is where history for me is really just juicy gossip. <laughs> I love it. That's all it was. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I could have just had Professor Molinar just, you know, tell me all about the ins and outs. And there's like so much we didn't cover still mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i wrote down in quotes the power of the mass she Ooh. said that at one point oh, wow, and i was like yeah. oh, that really stuck with me right like this this world that we live in and like that has so much meaning yeah really. yeah it strike strikes me too how society where uh science isn't really a big big thing at the time right where you're like well where else do you go for answers to the big mm-hmm. questions that you know, bubble inside of us, like who, who are my most powerful friends and how, how can I ask them for money? <laughs> right. I thought you were going to say, and how can I make them fall in love with me? Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. That's the means to the end. Or whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, it is interesting again, you know, this is a time where women obviously had no political power and, we're just so uh, creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it speaks to like the you know like how problematic like concentration of power and wealth can be. And it was interesting to hear her describe how like opulent you know this time in Paris was. How like they were like the city streets were there was like so many wealthy people and paved streets, things that you're like oh you know you associate associate with like modernism. Um, and yet still so much poverty. And like, that's really, that's a problem when you have such disparity because people, right. like you said, have to get creative uh-huh, to survive. Uh-huh. And when people have no, no political say, no power, uh, you're in trouble. I mean, something you made me think about was when she's, she was talking about the city walls. I feel like mm. in movies and in books, you know, you just, you hear, oh, I went outside the city walls into this right. like dangerous, you know, uh, like a... F- yeah, Romeo is banished from, right. from right. where does he live? I can't remember, but he has to like be outside the city walls. And just Verona, like, um, yes, yes. Verona, Verona, yes. <laughs> right. Um, yes, and, and, you know, just these dealings happening outside, you, you know, you're not protected outside the city walls. And honestly, when she was talking about her, like, villa and how there were gardens, and it sounded quite lovely, Outside the city walls? Yeah. <laughs> just outside, though. She was just outside. It's like so suburbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was... <laughs> she's in well, Brooklyn Heights. She's not in, like, deep, <laughs> deep Brooklyn. Well, I'll tell you what it made me think of uh, in modern age is the dark web. Mm, oh, where... interesting. So the dark web is outside the city walls for you. Yeah, well, it's like this place where yeah uh, you know, there's that's you where know, you go to network yeah. with all the other the yeah, underworld network. potion makers yeah, yeah. interesting 
Yeah. I like that, Chris. Um, so I know you guys were taking a lot of notes. Um, ultimately, I, uh, dropping a dime. Can we talk about mm. that? Yeah, that yeah. was cool to learn what the, what the history behind that phrase was. Yes. And just the fact that that's what led to this, um, you know, it was like a scandal for three years so many people (laughs) were arrested and 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 it was a good reminder of hers because yes we we talked about how there were 36 executions but what about the other people what happened to them and it's it's really like they were executed slowly yeah um it's a good reminder too if you're wrapped up in the if you're on the dark web or you're just outside the city walls associating with other you know bad actors there's no there's no telling when you might get sucked into a scandal and your name might be named careful yikes i thought drop the dime meant uh make a phone call i thought that was what you used to used to used to do you put a dime in the in the in the public phone I did. I thought that as well, Chris, because that's how much it when, cost. When but. she said drop a dime, I thought she was talking about people who would throw dimes off high things to try and kill people because it would fall on their head. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this is how it happened. I also thought it was drugs. Is Aren't dimes like... Yeah, like a dime bag. <laughs> I think it's the marijuana. Like you could buy a dime bag of marijuana. So, maybe other drugs. I mean, this term has been, has had multiple meanings. Kind of like uh, we learned last week, uh, the goat. Um, mm. the goat used to be bad, uh, yeah, now it's but good. now it's good. So, okay. So professor Molinoir, she, she didn't really want to name names, I guess. She didn't want to blame, which is understandable. We've had other guest experts have that same reaction to the question. I think like she said, historians, it's complicated, right (laughs) (laughs) and you know they do keep reminding us that it's complicated and we know trust me yeah context matters of course but towards the end she did kind of i don't know it felt like she was edging toward religion and the fact that Mm -hmm. that made it possible for all of these things to happen during this time it sounded like, you know, I, I kind of thought of it as like a perfect storm where you have like the prominence of religion. She also talked about the dynamic of power and like the stakes of that. And then just literally like you have a motive. Right. You know, and you have a means with these like developed poisons. So it seems like there's a lot that comes together to make all of this scandal really robust. Now, Clayton, can you remind us what it was we ended up sending to the alarmist jail and what it was we we gave the big slap to sure so we threw no rights for women in jail and we gave a big slap to a religious society oh circling around it Mm. she did she did say uh lack of power yeah uh right was Mm -hmm. that was kind of a, a her initial um so i think we i think we can stick to what we had yeah i feel good about that and I like that it wasn't like a single person that we sent to the alarmist jail because this is bigger and more complicated. Right. A lot going on. A lot going on. So, okay, that feels good. Um, again, thank you so much to Professor Molinoir. Um, and before we go, Clayton, 
I, I want to ask you and I want to re- remind all of our listeners to rate, review and subscribe to the show. We haven't had many uh, ratings uh, lately and it really hurts is, our feelings. It, <laughs> it, it hurts Chris's feelings and it, it worries us just because we this is how we stay on the map. This is how we get new listeners and we continue to make the show Clayton, is there a, a, a review uh, that in the past few weeks that has come through? Yes. Okay. Yes, we have one from Wendy and 99. Uh, Wendy says, five stars, my favorite part of the week. This podcast is certainly the best part of each Tuesday and Thursday. The hosts bring such a great mix of humor and history to each episode, and the guest experts add such a great level to the topics that most podcasts overlook. Miss an episode on, of this podcast? Not on my watch. <laughs> Highly recommend. Nice. So you see, there is an example of a t- of the type of review you might want to leave. <laughs> yes. Everyone needs to call us the best part of their day. <laughs> Two days a week. <laughs> yes, I want a bunch of them that just say best part of a uh, best part of my day. Uh, well, thanks again uh, to Professor Molinar, and stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing the Blair Witch Project. Erios. powered by Acast. 